We live in a culture that increasingly considers personal feelings to be the source of truth. So, if you feel like you are a girl, then those feelings make you a girl. If you feel like you are a boy, then that makes you a boy. Now, this issue that we see increasingly in our culture of transgenderism reflects an underlying culture shift regarding what we look to as the source of truth. It reflects that our culture is increasingly looking to personal feelings as the source of truth. That personal feelings determine reality for us. Another example of this in our culture. In in our culture, if people quote-unquote love each other, then it is seen as okay to have sex together. Regardless of either person's marital status, regardless of gender, regardless of the number of people involved, and increasingly regardless of age. If two people quote-unquote love each other, if they have feelings of love for one another, then it's okay for them to have sex together. Or, if you no longer have feelings for your spouse, then it is okay to divorce. Or, if children do not feel like doing something, then they shouldn't be made to do it. Our feelings determine truth. Our feelings are the source of truth. Our feelings determine reality. That is increasingly the world view and the belief of our culture. And we are seeing it show itself in more and more ways. Now, the Bible turns all of this upside down. The Bible presents itself as absolute truth. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, we read, All Scripture is breathed out by God. All of Scripture is the very Word of God. And the Bible says in Psalm 119, 160, The sum of your word is truth. The sum of God's word is truth. All of it is truth. In John 17, 17, Uh, Jesus prayed to the Father, Your word is truth. The Bible presents itself to us as absolute truth. The Bible rebukes our wrong beliefs. The Bible corrects our wrong beliefs. The Bible instructs us to stop living as we please and to instead live according to the truth of God's word. Often when the Bible rebukes and corrects sinful behavior, it brings us face to face with the truth according to which we must live. For example, when Jesus confronted the sin of hating one's enemy, He brought people to the truth of God's character and called people to live according to that standard. In Matthew 5, verse 43, He said, You have heard that it was said... You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For He makes His sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Jesus was speaking to a people who loved those who treated them well and hated their enemies. And Jesus brings us to the truth of God's character. God makes His Son to rise on the evil and on the good. He sends rain for the evil and the good. That is the truth. This is God's character. And you must live according to to that. You must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect because He does good to those who are evil, who are His enemies. You must 
love your enemy. You must do good to your enemies. God's word consistently rebukes sinful behavior by bringing us to the truth and calling us to live according to that truth. When we see this in our text that we are studying this morning in 1 Corinthians 3, the Apostle Paul has rebuked the Corinthians for how they were conducting themselves in the church. And in our text, he asks rhetorically, Do you not know? And then he states truth about the nature of the local church. The Corinthians cannot continue living in the same way because their way of life is contrary to the truth regarding the nature of the church. The truth, as revealed by God, dictates how we must live. It does not matter that the Corinthians don't feel like changing their ways. It does not matter that the Corinthians have been thinking differently. No. The truth, as revealed by God, dictates how they must live and how we must live. Our thinking and our living must be formed by the revealed truth of God. This is so fundamental in the Bible. And this is so fundamental in the Christian life. The revealed truth of God is authoritative for our lives. Now, what is the truth about the nature of the church that Paul brings up with the question, do you not know? Now, let's see. Our text is 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, which I'm going to read to us now, so please, if you are able, stand in honor of the Word of God. Verse 16. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. This is God's holy word. Please be seated. We have seen that the Apostle Paul addresses this epistle to quote, the church of God that is in Corinth. You can see that in chapter 1, verse 2. The church of God that is in Corinth, that is the local church in Corinth. In our last study, I gave a short definition of a local church. I said a local church is an assembly of believers in Jesus Christ who are committed to one another, and gathered together for the purpose of biblical worship and fellowship under the oversight of biblically qualified elders. And we could add more to that definition, but, but that is trying to get at the essence of what a local church is. There, there is the universal church, that is the, the, the body of Christ, uh, all believers today uh, who are in the Lord Jesus Christ, um, but that universal church is manifested in local churches. Uh, here there was the church of God in Corinth. And, and we are a local church. Christian Fellowship Church is a local church. Now, near the start of this epistle, Paul rebukes the Corinthian church for quarreling with one another and having divisions among themselves. You can see that in chapter 1, verses 10 and 11. And then he again rebukes them uh, for the same thing in chapter 3, verse 3, uh, but using different words, he rebukes them for having jealousy and strife among themselves. And, and he has been addressing the root of this problem. And the root of this problem in the Corinthian church is an, uh, an erroneous understanding of church ministry. They were viewing church ministry and church leaders through the lens of worldly wisdom rather than the lens of God's wisdom. God's wisdom is uh, wisdom that is centered on Christ and Him crucified. God's wisdom is what God has revealed to us. It is the Scriptures. And the Corinthians were viewing church ministry and church leaders through the lens of worldly wisdom rather than through the lens of God's wisdom. And Paul corrects this in 1 Corinthians. 
As the apostle does so, imparting a true understanding of church ministry, he says that the local church is like a field belonging to God. You see that in chapter 3, verse 9. Paul says that in Corinth, Paul planted the field. And that Apollos then watered the field. But he says, God gave the growth. Paul planted. He planted the seed of the word of God. He planted the church by proclaiming Christ and him crucified. Apollos came and he watered that seed. As he led the church and ministered God's word to the church, he watered. But it was God who gave the growth. Paul didn't give the growth. Apollos didn't give the growth. No mere man gave the growth. It was God who gave the growth. And it's always that way. Paul isn't speaking of something that is unique to the church at Corinth. This is the case in all of the churches of Christ. It is God who gives the growth. Paul said the leaders of the local church are not to be exalted. That's what the Corinthians were doing. They were exalting man. They were exalting certain leaders of the church. Paul teaches the leaders of the local church are not to be exalted, but they are mere servants of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's how we are to view the ministers of the church. That's how we are to view the leaders of the church as mere servants of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then Paul went on to compare the local church to a building belonging to God. And, and as he speaks of the church as a building, what he teaches about the church overlaps with what he taught about the church when he likened it to a field. He says that in Corinth, Paul laid the foundation by preaching Jesus Christ and Him crucified. He, he laid the foundation of the church. He laid the foundation of this building by preaching Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And he says, since then, others have been building on the foundation. Now, don't think of a, a literal building. He, he's not talking about a building in which the church met. No, he's speaking of the church as a building. He's likening the church to a building. Paul laid the foundation of the church by preaching Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Since then, others have been building on the foundation. Now, I want you to see exactly what Paul says about this in chapter 3, beginning at verse 9. Verse 9. He says, For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, Precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire." Paul says that those who minister in the church are building on the foundation with some kind of material. If they are building with God's revealed wisdom, which centers on Christ and Him crucified, their work will endure, and Christ will reward them after He returns. But, if they are building with worldly wisdom, their work will not endure testing, and they will forfeit the reward. I saw in the news... This past week, an example of building a church with worldly wisdom. And it was so sad to see. Uh, this happened recently at a seeker-sensitive megachurch. The senior pastors there are husband and wife. Senior pastors, plural, are husband and wife. In the worship service, they walked up to the platform dressed as the characters Little Bo Peep and Woody from the film Toy Story. And the husband started the worship service by saying, Well, hi, Bo Peep. And the wife responded, Hey, Woody. He said, Good to see you. She said, Good to see you too. He asked, Are you at church? 
She replied, yes, we are. Welcome to, and she gave the name of the church, welcome to blank everybody. And they proceeded to explain that they were in the middle of a summer series called At the Movies. Now, there's more that went on after that, but that's just enough to give you an example of building a church with worldly wisdom. Building a church with entertainment. There's nothing in Scripture that would lead us to start a worship service like that. It's bringing the world's ideas of how to make people glad that they're here. Um, How to bring people in and keep people coming. It's appealing to the feelings and the desires of the world around us. It's building the church with worldly wisdom. And Paul warns against building the church with worldly wisdom. The apostle continues his line of thought in our text. The passage that we're going to look at this morning speaks of the local church revealing something that we are to know and something of which we are to beware so that we will serve in the church in a way that glorifies God. And in light of our text, we could safely conclude that the church that I gave an example of, they don't view the church truly the way that Paul reveals the church to be in our text. If, if you understand what Paul says in our text about the nature of the church, then you are going to conduct yourself a certain way in that church. We're going to see something that we are to know. We're going to see something that we, of which we are to beware, so that we will serve in the church in a way that glorifies God. First of all, we see in verse 16 that we are to know the nature of the local church. Look closely with me at our text at verse 16. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? He asks, do you not know? The apostle here is rebuking the Corinthians for not living according to the truth that he's about to state. Do you not know that you are God's temple? Now there's an ESV footnote If you have the ESV, you'll notice a footnote there in the middle of verse 16 after the word you. And if you look down to see what the footnote says, it says the Greek for the word you is plural in verses 16 and 17. So that is a difference between Greek, in which this was originally written, and English. In Greek, like in many other languages, pronouns can be plural where in English we don't have a singular and and a plural. So in English the word you could be singular or it could be plural reference. In Greek it actually takes on a different form. So it's very clear if it's speaking about you, an individual, or you, a group of people. Here the word you in the original language is in the plural. Do you not know that you in the plural, that all of you who I'm speaking to, do you not know that you all are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? All you multiple members of the church are one temple, God's temple. Paul is saying that all the members of the church together are God's temple, that the local church is God's temple. Now, in other passages... Paul speaks of the individual believer's body being God's temple. We'll see that in chapter 6 when we get there. Paul also speaks in Ephesians 2 of the universal church being God's temple. But don't let those uses uh, in, in those other passages make you interpret this to be speaking of Paul saying that the spirit that the individual believer is the temple of God, or that the universal church of of Christ is the temple of God. Right here, he's speaking specifically of the local church, and saying the local church is God's temple. Do you not know that you are God's temple, and that God's Spirit dwells in you? 
What is a temple? A temple is a divine dwelling place. In the Old Testament, the tabernacle was a place where God dwelled among His people. The temple in Jerusalem was a house where God dwelled. Paul says, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? Again, plural, dwells in you collectively as the church. The NIV translates it in such a way that we can see the the plurality of that last word, you. It translates it as, and that God's Spirit uh, dwells in your midst. It also could be translated that God's Spirit dwells among you. Do you not know this? Now, think of the significance of the Holy Spirit dwelling in the midst of God's people. The Lord asked rhetorically in Jeremiah 23, 24, Do I not fill heaven and earth? Similarly, David prays in Psalm 139, verse 7, Where shall I go from your spirit, or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. The Bible teaches that God is present everywhere. Yet, what we see here in our text is that the Holy Spirit is present in a special way in the local church. Paul's not making a statement here about the omnipresence of the Holy Spirit. He's everywhere, including in our midst. No. He's speaking about the Holy Spirit dwelling in the local church being present in the local church in a special sense that goes beyond the sense in which He is present everywhere. When we as the church gather together, God's Spirit is in our midst in a special way. He is not present in this way at a sporting event. He is not present in this way at a political rally. He is not present in this way at a social event. He is not present in this way at any other gathering today. There's a special sense in which He is in the local church. That He dwells in the local church as His temple. In 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 24 and 25, Paul will speak of an unbeliever entering the church's worship service where that unbeliever hears God's word is convicted, is called to account, the secrets of his heart are disclosed, and, quote, so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. God is among us in a special way, as the Holy Spirit dwells in the local church, as his temple. And there are times when an unbeliever who enters will, by God's grace, recognize that very fact. That God is really among you. A temple is a place where God displays His glory in a special way. Back in Exodus, God gave instructions for the construction of the tabernacle, which was to be God's dwelling place among His people. And in Exodus chapter 40, the work on the tabernacle is completed. The furniture is completed. Everything is now in place. And we read in chapter 40, verse 34, Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting. That cloud was the glory of God, the manifestation of God's presence. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting. The tent of meeting here is used as a term for the tabernacle. The cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. The glory of the Lord. There was a visible representation of God's presence. And the glory of God filled the tabernacle. God displayed His glory in a special way there in the tabernacle. You see the same thing with with the temple in Jerusalem. In 1 Kings chapter 8, uh, the work has been completed on this temple in Jerusalem. It will replace the tabernacle. 
and the priests have taken the Ark of the Covenant and they have brought it into the Holy of Holies. And then they have exited the Holy of Holies. And what we read in 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 10, is when the priest came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord, so the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud. For the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. So just as it was with the tabernacle, with the glory of the Lord filling the tabernacle, so it was with the temple. The glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. God displayed His glory in a special way in the temple. And so when Ezekiel will speak in chapters 10 and 11 of the glory of God departing from the temple because of the apostasy of Israel, it will be spoken of in terms of the glory of the Lord departing from the temple. The glory will depart. The temple is a place where God displays His glory in a special way. What we see in our text is that the local church is a place where God is now displaying His glory in a special way. This is not true in false churches. There are many false churches today. The Spirit departs from a church when a church falls into apostasy and becomes a false church. But what Paul says here is true of true churches. The true local church is a place where God now displays His glory in a special way. When the church gathers together in the name of the Lord, the Word of God is proclaimed in the power of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit gives understanding of His Word, as we read in chapter 2. When the church gathers together in the name of the Lord, the Holy Spirit works through the Word to save, to sanctify, and to equip. When the church gathers together in the name of the Lord, the Holy Spirit produces His fruit in the lives of His people. When the church gathers together in the name of the Lord, the church has made a testimony of God's glorious grace. As God's glorious grace transforms the members of that church. God's purpose that He is fulfilling at this time in history is spelled out for us in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 10, where, where Paul says, So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This is the purpose of God that He is currently fulfilling. Through the church, God is making known the manifold wisdom of God. He's making it, it seen, he's making it to be seen by the whole world. It's a public revealing of the wisdom of God through the church. As God's temple, the local church is a place where God displays His glory in a special way. And as God's temple, the local church is also a place of corporate worship. A place of corporate worship. The local church is a worship center. God has gathered us into the church and dwells among us that we would worship Him. The church is not a theater that is a place of entertainment. The church is not a clubhouse that is a place of socializing. Rather, the church is a temple, a place of worship. What does it mean to worship God? To worship God is to both humble ourselves before Him and to exalt Him. We lower ourselves before Him and we exalt Him. We praise Him. We glorify Him. That's worship. What amazing grace that God would make the local church His temple. What amazing grace that God's Spirit would dwell in the local church. Remember what the Apostle said about God choosing people who are foolish in the eyes of the world to shame the wise. Go back to chapter 1, verse 26. Chapter 1, verse 26. He said, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame 
the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of Him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. God has chosen, as members of the church, those of us who have nothing to boast of in ourselves. So we will boast entirely in the Lord. And He's made us, who are lowly, who are despised in the eyes of the world, who may be nothings in the eyes of the world. He has chosen us to be His temple. God has gathered us together in Christ, and God dwells among us by His Spirit, making us His temple. What amazing grace. Verse 16 in our text is a rebuke. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? Paul is saying, you should know this, but you are living as if it were not so. You are living contrary to this when you have divisions in the local church. You are living contrary to this when you quarrel in the church. You are living contrary to this when you have jealousy in the church. You are living contrary to this when you have strife in the church. You're living contrary to this when you conduct yourself in a fleshly way in the church. The truth that we as a local church are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells among us should radically affect the way that we conduct ourselves in the church. We as Christians should be committed to a local church. It was unthinkable to the apostles that a Christian would not be committed to a local church church, being that the local church is God's temple where God's spirit dwells, we should love the local church. Many people who profess faith in Christ are indifferent to the local church. They say, well, if it's convenient, I will attend. But we should love the local church because it is the dwelling place of the spirit of God. We should put a high priority on gathering with our local church. Being that we, as the church, are the temple of God. We are the place where the Holy Spirit dwells. We should put a high priority on gathering with our local church. We should conduct ourselves with humility, with reverence, with holiness in the local church. Knowing that the church is the dwelling place of God. And everything we do in the church should be worshipful, knowing that we are God's temple. And as taught in the previous paragraph, we should be careful to build with the proper materials. Because the church is God's temple where God's Spirit dwells, we should be very careful to build not with wood, hay, and straw, but to build with gold, silver, and precious stones. And so the Apostle's first point in our text is know the nature of the local church. That the local church is God's temple and dwelt by God's Spirit. So let me ask you, beloved brethren, is this how you view the local church? When you are heading over to the gathering of the local church? Is this the way that you view the local church? When you think about the church throughout the week, is this how you think of it? As God's temple, where God's Spirit dwells. Are you mindful that this is what you are part of, brothers and sisters? Are you mindful that you are, in being a part of the church, you are part of God's temple? You are part of a temple where God's Spirit dwells. Are you mindful that that is what you are part of? Is is this how you view the meetings of our church? That we gather together as God's temple indwelt by the Spirit. This is not just you and I as human beings gathering together. No, we're gathering together as God's temple. Where God's Spirit dwells. And are you mindful that this is what you serve in? You're not serving in some club. You're not serving in some social organization. You are serving 
When you serve in the local church, you are serving in God's temple where God's spirit dwells. Are you mindful of this? This makes membership in the church a weighty thing. This makes the meetings of our church weighty. This makes everything that Christ has for us to do in the church weighty, that the local church is God's temple where God's spirit dwells. The second point follows from this. The second point is beware of destroying the local church. Beware of destroying the local church. Look with me at verse 17. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. This is a solemn warning. It is the strongest warning in the New Testament against destroying a church. And Paul gives this warning because the Corinthians, with their divisiveness, were headed in this direction of destroying the church at Corinth. There is a difference between what Paul talked about in the previous paragraph about building with shoddy materials and destroying the church. Verse 15 warned that if someone builds with poor materials, they will lose their reward, though they themselves will be saved. But now verse 17 warns that if someone destroys God's temple, God will destroy them. That's a big difference. By utilizing worldly wisdom in the church, the Corinthians were building with wood, hay, and straw, and if they did not correct this, they would forfeit their reward. But now what we see in our text is if their divisiveness was not corrected, they would end up destroying the church. Understand that a building can only have so many cracks in its walls before it will crumble. As those cracks in the walls widen and multiply, the building moves closer and closer to collapsing. And so it is in the church. Fleshliness whether it takes the form of divisions, or jealousy, or strife, etc., if it is not repented of, but grows and increases, will eventually destroy a church. A church can be founded on the sure foundation of Christ and Him crucified, but if the flesh is given free reign, the church will in due time be destroyed from the inside out. Now, while the universal church of Jesus Christ cannot be destroyed, a local church can be destroyed. Jesus was speaking of the universal church when he promised in Matthew 16, 18, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. But he warned local churches of being destroyed if they did not repent of their evil ways. The exalted and risen Christ wrote a letter to the church in Ephesus. In Revelation chapter 2, verse 5, we read in that letter from the exalted Christ to the church in Ephesus, Remember therefore from where you have fallen, repent and do the works that you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Christ warned the church in Ephesus that if they did not repent, He would remove their lampstand, which means He would bring their church to an end. Similarly, Jesus said to the church in Sardis, in Revelation chapter 3, verses 2 and 3, Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Christ warned that church in Sardis, if they did not repent, He would come against them to destroy them. Churches can be destroyed in Christ's... I'm sorry, churches can be destroyed by Christ in judgment and by their own members in sinful and utter disregard to Christ's instructions. It is the latter that the Apostle Paul warns against in our text. The members of a church, through sinful and utter disregard to Christ's instructions, destroying that church. 
And Jesus, I'm sorry, the apostle says, if anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. This warning is very, very strong. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. The punishment matches the offense. If you destroy God's church, God will destroy you. Now this word destroy stands in contrast to the word saved back in verse 15. Back in verse 15, Paul said, If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. In contrast to that word saved, we have the word destroyed in verse 17. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. Speaking of eternal ruin, just as that word destroy speaks of eternal ruin in the following verses. In Matthew 10, 28, Jesus said, And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. The word destroyed is also used in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 39. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and pre- preserve their souls. And then again in 2 Thessalonians 1.9, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. This warning in 1 Corinthians 3.17, if anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. It's warning that God will punish not, not with some, some earthly, temporary punishment. It's warning of eternal destruction to the one who would destroy God's church. Our, our text warns the person who would destroy God's temple that God will take from him everything worthwhile in life. That God will ruin him. That God will punish him with utter loss of well-being for all eternity. This is a very strong warning. Now, this destruction is not annihilation. There, there are some churches who wrongly take the passages in Scripture that warn of eternal destruction and say, that well, that means uh, that the soul will go out of existence in eternity. But that's not what the Bible is speaking about when it warns of an eternal destruction, not the annihilation of the soul so that someone goes out of existence. But when the Bible warns about eternal destruction, it's warning about eternal conscious punishment. The Bible is clear that the wicked will not be annihilated. The Bible is clear that the wicked will suffer an eternal conscious punishment. For example, in Matthew 25, verse 46, as Jesus speaks about the sheep and the goats in the final judgment, He says, And those, these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. There are two destinies. One is eternal life, the other is eternal punishment. Not a temporary punishment that takes someone out of existence, but eternal punishment. In John 3.36, Jesus said, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Not that the wrath of God will consume him so he goes out of existence, but the the wrath of God will remain on the unbeliever for all of eternity. Revelation chapter 20 verse 10 says that the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. The lake of fire is a place of eternal torment. And that is where the Bible says that Christ will cast the wicked in, in the eternal state. For all of eternity, the wicked will be tormented day and night, forever and ever, in the lake of fire. When the Bible warns of destruction, as it does here, if anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. It's speaking about that eternal conscious punishment and emphasizing the fact that, that God ruins that person. That God removes from them everything worthwhile in life. That is the judgment. Now you may ask, how could God do this to a member of the church? They professed faith in Christ. How, if, how could, and I understand that destroying the church is really serious, but 
if, if, if someone professed faith in Christ, how could God, after they destroy the church, send them to eternal destruction? Well, I want to show you what the Apostle Peter said to Simon the Magician, a man who professed faith in Christ and was a false convert. Turn over to Acts chapter 8. The book of Acts chapter 8. We'll begin at verse 9. Verse 9. But there was a man named Simon, who had previously practiced magic in the city, and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him, from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him, because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now, when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. Now we've already been told that Simon believed the message and that he was baptized. But look at how Peter speaks to him in verse 20. May your silver perish with you. This is a curse, meaning may you perish in hell. Verse 21, Peter continued, You have neither part nor lot in this matter. For your heart is not right before God. When Peter says to Simon, you have neither part nor lot in this matter, he's saying you neither have part nor lot in this gift of the Holy Spirit. You don't have the Holy Spirit. Verse 22, Repent therefore of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that if possible the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. That Simon, and here, in a sense, the ascended Christ gives Peter eyes to see the heart of this man Simon. And as Jesus enables Peter to see Simon's heart, what does Simon see? Or what does Peter see? He sees that Simon is in the gall of bitterness. Meaning that Simon is immersed in the poison produced by his idolatrous heart. And Peter sees that Simon is in the bond of iniquity. That he's in the chains of iniquity, under iniquity's dominion, and under God's just condemnation for his iniquity. We see here that it's very possible to profess faith in Christ. Simon did that. And to appear to believe, that's, that's why we were told in the text he believed, it appeared that he believed. And to be baptized, we're told Simon was baptized. And to be a false convert like Simon. Making a profession of faith doesn't mean that you truly have saving faith in your heart. You can say one thing with your lips, you can give an appearance, you can go through baptism... But that does not mean that you are truly converted. That does not mean that you truly have repented of your sins. It does not mean that you are truly trusting in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And so there are false converts. And Peter points out that Simon is a false convert. He has no part in the Holy Spirit. has no part in salvation. He's on the road to eternal destruction. And so... You can come back to our text. 
Our text warns, in verse 17, if anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. How could someone who has professed faith in Christ, who has been baptized by the church, how could they ever suffer eternal destruction? What we see here is that if you end up destroying the church, it shows that you were never truly converted. If you end up destroying the church, it shows that you will suffer eternal destruction as the just punishment for destroying Christ's church. Achan, in the book of Joshua, was an Israelite, but God devoted him to destruction just like the Canaanites. Judas was an apostle of Christ and followed him for three years. But John 13 verse 27 says that Satan entered into Judas. And the church said in Acts chapter 2 verse 25 that Judas turned aside to go to his own place. What place is that? That's hell. And our text warns, if anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. The God who struck Ananias and Sapphira dead for lying to the Holy Spirit will not hesitate to do as he warns here and to destroy that individual who destroys God's church. Now our text gives a reason why God will destroy him who destroys God's temple. Look in our text at verse 17. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. The reason is that God's temple is holy. The word holy means set apart unto the Lord and unto His service. The Mosaic Covenant emphasized the holiness of the tabernacle. Because the tabernacle was the Lord's dwelling place, the Lord jealously guarded its holiness. The, t- the tabernacle was not to be tampered with without grave danger. Any act that profaned the tabernacle, meaning any act that defiled the tabernacle, was a serious offense against the holy God who indwelt the tabernacle. Turn back to Leviticus chapter 15 to see this. The, th- the third book of the Bible, the book of Leviticus chapter 15. Chapter 15 gives laws regarding ceremonial uncleanness. It was not morally wrong to be ceremonially unclean. But when you are ceremonially unclean, you were not allowed to approach the tabernacle because the tabernacle was holy. Look at verse 31. Thus you shall keep the people of Israel separate from their uncleanness, lest they die in their uncleanness by defiling my tabernacle that is in their midst. In other words, if someone who was ceremonially unclean would approach the Lord's tabernacle, they would defile it. And the Lord warned that such a person would die for defiling the tabernacle. Now, if the Lord was jealous for the holiness of the tabernacle, and would put to death a person who defiled the tabernacle, how much more he is jealous for the church, and will destroy anyone who destroys his holy temple. Through redemption, God has set apart the church unto himself. God chose her members by grace before the foundation of the world. Christ redeemed her members at the cross. By giving his spirit to her members, God has set them apart unto himself. It is the presence of the Holy Spirit dwelling in the church that has consecrated the church, making her holy. The church is precious to God. When the Lord consecrated Israel to Himself, redeeming them and establishing His covenant with them, He said in Exodus 19, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey My voice and keep My covenant, you shall be My treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is Mine, and you shall be to Me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation." And the church, consecrated by God, is just as much God's treasured possession. The prophet says to Israel in Zechariah chapter 2, verse 8, He who touches you touches the apple of his eye. That is, the apple of the eye of the Lord of hosts. And the same is true of the local church. He who touches the local church touches the apple of the Lord's eye. The church is precious to Christ. The church is precious to our triune God. 
the way our text puts it. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. The Israelites were to fear doing anything that would profane the tabernacle, and likewise we are to fear doing anything destructive to the church. The Corinthians were to fear acting in a sinfully divisive way, forming competing parties around different leaders in the church. And this is why Paul forbids boasting in church leaders in our text. If you go down in chapter 3 of 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, go down to verses 21 and following, just a few verses after our text, verse 21, So let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours, and you are Christ, and Christ is God's. Let no one boast in men. Like the Corinthians, we too are to fear acting in a fleshly way in the church, knowing that it profanes God's holy temple. As the author of the book of Hebrews put it in chapter 12, verse 28, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Beloved brethren, let me ask you, are you concerned that everything you do in the church would build up the church rather than profane it or tear it down? Do you seek God's grace to walk by the Spirit in the church rather than walking according to the flesh? We need God's grace to do so. Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. Do you seek God's grace to walk by the Spirit in the church rather than walking according to the flesh? knowing that the church is God's holy temple, and that God takes this seriously, should move us to seek His grace, to walk by the Spirit in the church, rather than according to the flesh. Have you been acting in a way that, if continued, would lead toward the destruction of the church? If so, take the warning in this passage seriously. Repent of such behavior, that you would not take another step down this path towards destroying the local church. Now before we conclude, consider this question. How can a holy God dwell among people who sin? The church is holy in the sense of being consecrated to God, but the church is not yet without sin. However, our text says the Holy Spirit dwells among us. So how is it, being that the Spirit of God is completely holy, infinitely holy, how is it that the Spirit of God can dwell among us who are not yet completely sanctified, who are not yet glorified, who still do sin? A holy God does not tolerate any sin. How can the Holy Spirit dwell among a church that still has sin? The answer is the same as it was when the Lord dwelled among the Israelites. He dwells among us on the basis of atonement. The tabernacle was the place of atonement. And that atonement in the tabernacle prefigured the true atonement. The death of Jesus Christ for our sins. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 11 says that the church is built on the foundation of Jesus Christ. The foundation is Christ and Him crucified. The only reason there can be a temple is that Christ made perfect atonement for the sins of His people. Because Christ redeemed us at the cross and then rose from the dead, He has made us into God's temple. He has cleansed us with the blood of Christ. He has imputed Christ's righteousness to us by grace. Our sins are forgiven. We stand right before God because of Jesus Christ. Because Christ redeemed us at the cross and rose from the dead, He has made us into God's temple in which the Holy Spirit dwells. Let me ask you, my friend, do you know Jesus Christ as your Redeemer? This may be the most important question for you to consider 
Do you know Jesus Christ as your Redeemer? The destruction that is warned of in our text is a destruction that actually all of us deserve. It is a destruction that all of us will suffer in eternity unless we are saved by the Lord Jesus Christ. Because God is holy and God is just and He he must punish sin. He must punish rebellion. He must punish transgression. We read in Acts chapter 17, verse 30 and following, Now God commands all people everywhere to repent, because He has fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom He has appointed. And of this He has given assurance to all by raising Him from the dead. So the resurrection of Jesus Christ did two very significant things. First of all, the resurrection of Jesus Christ declared that God the Father had accepted the sacrifice that Christ made at the cross. Along with that, declared that Jesus is the Son of God. And second, the resurrection of Jesus Christ declared that Jesus is the man whom God has appointed to be the judge of the living and the dead on the future day of judgment. Jesus Christ has been appointed as the judge. He will judge the world, God will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom He has appointed, and of this He has given assurance to all by raising Him from the dead. There is no escaping the Lord Jesus Christ. He has ascended to the Father's right hand. He will come again. There is nowhere that you can go to hide from Christ. There is no sin that you have committed that you can hide from His eyes. He will judge the living and the dead. The Bible says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And that the wages of sin is death. It's an eternal death, an eternal judgment. But God in His grace sent His own Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to die for sinners. Suffer the penalty that we deserve for our sin. That's why Jesus went to the cross. He didn't go to the cross just to give us an example of sacrificial love. He went to the cross to make atonement for the sins of His people. And He rose again. And Jesus commands all people to repent of their sin and to believe on Him as Lord and Savior. The Bible gives us the good news. The good news of Jesus Christ. And it promises salvation. promises eternal life. Forgiveness of sin, the imputed righteousness of Christ to all who will repent of their sin and believe in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. And so this morning, if you do not know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, I urge you, I call upon you to turn from your sin, to forsake your sin, to repent of your sin, turning from your sin to Jesus Christ, to trust Him as your Savior from sin. to to, to rest the full weight of your soul upon Christ. Submit your life to Him as your Lord, as your one and only Lord, to follow Him the rest of your days. The Bible promises salvation, eternal life, to all who believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And when you believe, you are baptized by the Holy Spirit into the body of Christ. You're made a member of Christ's church. And you are instructed to join a local church, a dwelling place of the Holy Spirit, God's temple, where God's Spirit dwells. Well, this is a weighty passage with a great, great truth of the nature of the church as God's temple, where God's Spirit dwells, with a very strong warning against doing anything that would destroy what is the apple of the Lord's eye. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You so much that You sent Jesus for us. We thank You for the Gospel of Christ and Him crucified. Is by this gospel that we are saved. Lord, we thank you for 
placing us in the local church. Your temple, where your spirit dwells. Oh Lord, we ask you to keep us mindful that that this is the true nature of the local church. Lord, when we we gather together to to worship, may we be mindful of this. When we gather together to, to fellowship and to edify one another, may this be something that we are truly mindful of. May, may we not be living lives that ignore this truth, that are contrary to this truth, but by your grace may we be, be living according to this truth. Treasuring the local church. Participating in the local church. Conducting ourselves in holiness and reverence in the local church. Serving in the local church in a way that that reflects the weightiness of these things. Unto your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.